chapter 2. Part 9, if you can believe it, in our series of the days to come. Before we read our text, um, I want to encourage you to come this Wednesday night uh, in our book study of Revelation. I am going to pause from the verse-by-verse alliteration, and I want to speak to you more about uh, what you see uh, in the world today and the signs that are happening, a convergence, if you will, of the signs. Some are geopolitical, some are uh, financial, some deal with the global markets, some deal with the false religions of the earth. But I don't know if I've ever had more important Wednesday nights than the next two. So I just encourage you, those that would come, uh, as we study the book of Revelation, as well as the convergence of the end time signs of the last day. Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. If you're there, say amen. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, and that could be the messenger or the pastor of the church, these things saith he which has the sharp sword with two edges. I know your works and where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is. And you hold fast my name and you've not denied my faith. Even in those days when Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Thou also hast them that holds the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come unto you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, that implies to say him that overcometh, that there will be those in the church that do not overcome. But to the one that overcomes, will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saveth he that receiveth it. You may be seated this morning. If I seem a little tired or a drag in my voice, it's because I am. Uh, Last night, my little Izzy had a bad cough, and uh, she sounded like a seal, you know, balancing a ball on her nose. It was like, and it was just nonstop, and she needed her dad. So this 53-year-old man slept on the floor last night, and uh, I feel it. You feel me? I felt it. had someone that loves me very much this morning said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm just tired. You. you don't look well, but my spirit man's good. Spirit man, good. But I'm dreaming of a attic fan going with a cool breeze after I preach. I'm ready to preach to you, but don't get misunderstood. Nap time is coming in the Lord's name. It's coming. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give Kelly $50 and say, go find something to do with the babies. This Never in my lifetime have I felt the coming of the Lord was closer. Not statistically. My spirit, man, is pulsing. And you know what else thrills me? Is that the fulfillment of prophecy that there will be scoffers in the last day that say, the Lord's coming. You, they've been saying that for eons. And I look to them, I don't say it, but said, you're a fulfillment of another prophecy. 
that right before the Lord comes, have you ever known a time where they attacked the return of the Lord like today? It's not going to happen. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. And it's one thing to be looking for the Lord to come, but before his coming in Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the unveiling of him and his glory and his power and his judgment, he talked to the church. Revelation 1 and 2, he talks to the church, Philadelphia and Thyatira and Pergamos and Ephesus and Smyrna and Laodicea. And those messages are important to us so that we're ready for the return of the Lord. If there was no part we play, then he would not tell us to pray that you be accounted worthy to escape the great and terrible day of the Lord. Someone said not too long ago, well, everyone goes. If you're a believer, everyone goes in the rapture. The Lord wouldn't divide his body. They're divided now. How many got loved ones in heaven? We're divided. So there is a a looking of being prepared, of being ready. And if you study the message to the churches, it always says, now to the individual, he that can hear, if you have the capacity to hear, hear. And if you look at the messages to the churches and you apply it to your life and respond to it, then you're prepared for Revelation 4 when the Lord says, come up higher. He teaches us about the things that have happened, the things that are present, and the things to come. And after Revelation 4, there's no mention of the church. But to the church, he says, oh, if you don't deal with this, I'll come quickly. I'll remove my presence from the church. And if he'll remove his presence from the church, he'll remove his presence from your life. I'll judge you quickly. I won't be abated. I won't look over this. And I want to talk to you this morning just for a few moments on the doctrine of Balaam. And it may not be what you think. The Bible says that Jesus said, I have this against you, that there are people in your church that hold to the doctrine of Balaam. So it was believed, it was taught, it was duplicated, but it did not miss the eye of God. Let's look at this first. Number one, they were under the sword of God. Pergamos was under the sword of God. In verse 12, it said, These things saith he which has the sharp sword with two edges. And we know that means that the word of God was speaking the word of God. Because Hebrews 4.12 tells us the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the man's heart. When the word of God is preached under the anointing or when you read it uh, with a surrendered spirit, it's two-edged. It cuts coming and going. That's why, as a minister, you're careful not to swing it with an attitude of superiority or hate because you can harm people in a way that God's not intended. But if the word is preached, if you are receiving the word of God, you're not just encouraged, you are cut. You can't listen to anointed preaching or study the word of God in the spirit of humility without something being cut from your life. Some, it cuts coming and it cuts going, but it's not a brutality. It's like a vine dresser does the vines so that we'll be more fruitful. See, at this point in time, they were under the sword of Rome. And if they did not declare that Caesar is Lord, they would die by the sword. And he said, in one of the men, Antipas, you saw him die among you. So that means more than likely that in a gathering, a local body, 
The soldiers came in and picked one or picked a leader and said, denounce the name of Christ or say that Caesar is Lord. He said, I will not. And they watched him die under the sword of Rome. So Jesus addresses the people who have witnessed murder in their own church. And here's what he's saying. Don't be afraid of that sword. Be afraid of this one. Because not only can I prune believers, I can annihilate unbelievers. Didn't he say in the gospel, don't be afraid of those that can kill your body, but be fearful of the one that can take body and soul and sentence one to hell. The sword of God's word when you are a true disciple. So picture you on the front porch. Hopefully the weather's good. You got your cup of coffee. Uh, The kids are gone. You've got your Bible opened. And you will find all of the attributes of the Lord there. There will be comfort. There will be encouragement. There will be uh, familiarity. There will be intimacy. But you can't read it without feeling that part being addressed. That, That thing that you overlook, he doesn't overlook. Listen, this sword cuts precisely. You go to the doctor and you go, man, I just feel like my rotator cuff is torn. He don't grab your leg. He goes, this one? Yeah, yes, that one. And when you read the word, it goes right back to that last thing you didn't deal with. And it's with precision. The Lord just doesn't hack a believer up. He takes it and he addresses it. And sometimes, and I'm so grateful that he's so patient with your pastor. Instead of judging me, he'll take the point of that sword And just touch it. Didn't I tell you about this? You forgive them now. Or you're going to be judged yourself. And I'm grateful that the one that holds the sword doesn't do it to kill me. But does it to prune me. And to prepare me for his return. This sword cuts cleanly. It cuts thoroughly. It cuts easily. The Lord doesn't saw Christians in half. Have you ever sang in worship and sing the word of God and it cut just so easily to your heart and you stop singing and you'll drop to your knees, you know, and you saw several people this morning came to the, to the altar for different reasons. And I love that. You always have the freedom to do that. Do you, do you know what generally it means? That's those lyrics are me. When, when we sang, God's took me through the storm and you'll see somebody go, yes, Lord. Or when you're preaching, someone will raise their hand or stand with their Bible. They're saying, that's me. And it cuts so easily. You go from singing to a place of repentance. The Lord doesn't have to beat you over the head with preaching. It's just a proclamation of the word. And it cuts so easily if the heart is tender. It cuts equally. Black, white, red, yellow, poor, rich, kind and unkind. God's word is no respecter of persons. But here's what you have to be careful of. You can't live your life based on somebody else's dealings with the Lord. Because his sword may have not touched them where it touched you. You must walk out your salvation in fear and trembling. And it cuts unmistakably. Number two. This church was under the eyes of God. He said, I know. You need to mark that in your Bible. I know. The one that walks through the churches, the one that holds the ministers in his hand, the one that's the light of the gathering, he said, I know. I know your works, which means I know everything you've done in my name. 
and for my name. I know what you did for other people. I know what you didn't do. If you've gone to this church any length of time, you know that we are not a church that preaches and teaches and pulls and manipulates for money. We don't, never have, and never will. But there are people. I don't know because I don't look at the books, but there are people that receive the ministry from this house and teaching and preaching and all the blessing and, and never contribute. And that, that's, hey, that's between them and the Lord. But he, he would say to you, and again, I don't need your money. I'm not trying to get you money. I know what you don't give. As well as I know that single mama with four kids, I know what she gives. I know where you serve. And I know when you make excuses not to serve. That word I know is one of the most two-edged words. Have you ever made the statement, the Lord knows my heart? Watch for the two edges. That's a wonderful thing. Because no matter what you say, the Lord knows my heart. That's a wonderful thing. And on the other side of that sword, I know your heart. Mm. Cuts both ways. I know your works. You know what work is? Work isn't what this generation thinks it is. I talked to somebody at a, I won't mention the place, but let's just say a retail place. And this fellow looked like they had rode him all day, every day, hung him up wet, you know, weathered. I said, buddy, you okay? Man, they're just about to kill me here. And I'm, it's like eight o'clock at night. I said, well, did you work a double today? He sure did. Nine to 12 and five to eight. And I was waiting for the punchline. And he's trying to find a friend. He goes, they're crazy up in here. Work you all to death. I go, buddy. This is what I told him. I said, and you're tired? He looked at me like, you know, you know what I'm talking about. And you go to tell him your stories. You know, when I was in high school, I went to work at 5, got off at 7.30, went home and showered, went to school, high school, come back, worked 4 to 11. I worked 40 to 50 hours a week and went to high school. And they go, They're thinking like, you should call defects, man. <laughs> and I don't know how to break this to you, brother bag boy. I don't know how to break this to you, but you ain't working yet. And I want to tell you about the world. The world is run by tired people. I'm just calling in today. Are you sick? Mm-mm, I don't feel like it. That's why customer service is what it is. Oh, it is. Because we've lost the work ethic and concept. Now listen. How is your work ethic in the kingdom of God? Any of us. Oh, that's easy for you to say, preacher, you get paid. I'd love to address that. I get paid today more than I ever have in my life. God has provided for me miraculously and faithfully. Most of it undeserved. But years ago, I told him, I want to spend the rest of my life serving you and working for you. And when the deal's done, it'll show up if I worked or not, or if I did it for monetary gain or not. But you, you, you'll see that man that works two jobs or that woman that works two jobs, and they'll say, oh, you're working for this reason or you're working for that reason. But in their heart, they're working for their children. They're working for their babies. When you hear someone make excuses for a lack of a work ethic, 
they're the last one to know that you're on to them. Do you work for the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm glad you come here. I'm glad that you support here. But if you're not working, we're carrying you. And if we're going to be great for the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to take all we got from all of us. Now, this is not guilt. Listen, I'm not appealing. I'm not giving you promotions on where to serve. I'm reading this to you before the return of the Lord. He wants you to know I know your works. Which also implies I know that you don't. And our time is running out. And whatever we're going to do for the Lord, we need to do it with all of our heart, mind, and strength. And for those of you that drive great distances and work faithfully, understand this. The Lord knows your works. And there's great reward for them. He knows where you live. He knows your surroundings. He said these people live in, near Satan's seat. He knows your steadfastness. He said, you hold my name and you've denied my faith. I know of your persecution. You watched your friend be killed for my name's sake. And I know of the spiritual opposition. You live where Satan dwells. This word, some of you need to go home and just on your legal pad, for your eyes only, write, I know. I know. And you can make a couple of changes And change the whole temperature of your life just based on that. I know. Because when he comes, we will be rewarded for our works. Not for his redeeming work. I am saved based on what he did for me. Period. I'll be rewarded based on what I did for him. Period. So before he comes back, he tells them, I know your works. Which blesses them and convicts us. Or blesses them and blesses us. Let me move from that. That didn't go over too well, but it's the truth nonetheless. Number three, this church was under the disapproval of God. He said, I have a few things against you. Because you have people in your church that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed into idols and to commit fornication. Jude 11 speaks of the error of Balaam. 2 Peter 2 speaks of the way of Balaam. And Revelation 2 speaks of the doctrine of Balaam. And very quickly in the book of Numbers, you'll find a prophet named Balaam who was not really a prophet of God. He was more of a diviner, a soothsayer, a psychic. But the Lord spoke to him at times. But he was always... um, one that was maneuvering, manipulating for financial gain. He was a prophet for hire. And this king, Balak, saw how God always defended the Israelites. Incredibly defended them. No one could beat them. No one could touch them as long as they were in union with God. And he hired Balaam to pronounce a curse upon the Israelites. And every time he tried to curse them out of his mouth would flow blessing about Israel. He, he could not do it. And He told the king, I can't do it. God will not allow me to curse them. So they offered him more money. And he asked the Lord, could he go again? Can I go to curse your people? And the Lord told him, said, go. And as he went, it angered God because God had already told him no to start with. And this is for somebody here this morning. 
But you keep going back to God asking him, can I do the same thing that's not right? And he said, go. And on his way there, so I'd love to see this video when I get to heaven. He's on his donkey. And the Lord sent an angel of the Lord in between this narrow pathway between uh, obstacles, whether it was building walls, there was no room for anyone to get by, no two lane traffic, just one lane. And there stood an angel with a flaming sword and the donkey's like, uh, no, we're not going that way. And he smote the donkey and the donkey's like, you can swing that all you want. You can kick me. I'm not going through here because this angel of the Lord is ready to kill who comes forward. And the Lord empowered the mule to speak. And you can imagine what kind of sermon title you can get out of that. <laughs> when talks. But anyway, the donkey turned around to him and said, have I ever disobeyed your command? Now listen to this. He answered. No, not until this point you haven't. Wait a minute. Time out. Your donkey turns around. Have I ever disobeyed you? I'm like, oh, you just go over. You fall out. You don't dialogue with the donkey. What this tells us, and I'm saying this in jest, but what this tells us, that he is not unfamiliar with psychic and spiritual, supernatural, even though it wasn't godly, incantations of the light because it didn't bother him at all. And he said, you know, the Lord was going to smite you for going through this way. So anyway, he goes back. He tries to curse them again. And the king says, I will reward you richly if you can just curse them. And here's what he said. I can't curse what God has blessed. I can't. And you hear a lot of charismatic preachers preach that, but they don't tell you the story. He said, but I tell you what do. Have the Midianite women... The temple prostitutes go into their camp and invite them to worship. Because if they live unrighteously, you won't have to kill them. God will. And the doctrine of Balaam is the teaching and the preaching and the prophetic that encourages God's people to sin. Now, this is going to be very practical today, and I want, I want you to get this, okay? And take it home and be prepared to use it as a standard of judgment for anything you read or listen to or take in as ministry. This is the error of the doctrine. It teaches that you can change the Word of God to fit your wants and needs. God had already told them about fornication, He'd already told them about idolatry. And these women seduced these men and not only seduced them into committing fornication in front of the idols, but burning incense and everything. But God had already told them. So the doctrine of Balaam is, hey, God's blessed you. Uh, whoever blesses you, uh, God blesses. And whoever curses you, God curses you. And this minister says, hey, it's okay to do this. Listen to this. Let me find the verse. In Numbers 31, it says, that he was angry with Balaam because he caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam. He was angry because the, the children of Israel cursed through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. 
And God sent a plague among the congregation of the Lord and 24,000 of them were killed by God's wrath. Because we're living in a dispensation of grace where God sees it and doesn't judge, people that preach the doctrine of Balaam tell you God's okay with it. And just because God hasn't judged it yet doesn't mean he's not going to judge it. And in the church, we sadly... There's much that has to do with where we're taught directly or indirectly that as long as you're not judged for it, God's okay with it. And we have to know the word of God for ourselves. So when deceivers, intentional or unintentional, try to pull us into rebellion, we know for ourselves. And I'm not going through that narrow pathway. There's an angel with a sword that way. I'm not going that path. This doctrine teaches that you are God's people and you can live as you want with immunity. It teaches that present and future blessings are ours regardless of our lives, motives, words, and actions. I'm blessed until you're judged. There is a scripture that says, behold the goodness and the severity of God. The error in this doctrine is this. My position in Christ keeps me from being judged for my rebellion. That's the doctrine of Balaam. Now my salvation is not based upon works. It's based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ paid for my sins, redeemed me unto himself. I am forgiven. But willful rebellion is judged. The Bible says, despise not the chastening, the judgment of the Lord, because if you did not have that, you would be bastards, illegitimate children. And it's the evidence of a believer. It's the evidence when God chastises us in our soul, in our spirit, through outside circumstances, you know it's punishment for the choices. It's like the angel in the pathway, instead of killing you, he just pokes you with this and says, no, you're not going this way. Don't you ever curse your angel. Don't you ever curse the block that God puts in front of you that keeps you from rebelling. The error of this doctrine says you can live like you want because your position in Christ secures all blessings. And the Bible tells us we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the confidence of our faith steadfast unto the end. The ministers of this doctrine... They teach it because it's very profitable to do so. So Balak is offering Balaam all of this money to curse God's people. Listen, this is so good. This is so important. There are countless preachers, teachers, ministers that are willing to curse you for monetary gain. They are willing to lead you into destruction for monetary gain. I haven't raised my voice today. I'm not preaching. I don't have the energy to raise my voice today. No, no anger. But this type of preaching doesn't draw the crowd. It doesn't open the floodgates of money. And the reason other ministers, many ministers, I should say, tell you what you want to hear because it's lucrative to them. So when God tells us in Revelation, be careful of the doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of the prophet, the minister. Look at the minister. What's he doing? And if, you, if, you, if you're being told only what you want to hear so that they can get to your wallet, that's a sign of the doctrine of Balaam that's prevalent in the church. 
They teach it because of the widespread audience it appeals to. They teach it because it gives them accept, acceptability, popularity, and approval. When you preach the word of God, as you go into this last day, this last hour, this is going to be less popular. But it's going to be popular with the believers that are preparing themselves to stand before the Lord. But in the other area, it's not going to be so popular. They teach it because it gives them license to do it. So if I teach you that you can be shacked up and live with someone that's not your spouse, if I teach you that you can commit adultery with someone outside of your marriage covenant, that you can practice fornication outside of marriage, that you can live a homosexual lifestyle, or you can be gluttonous, or you can be greedy. The Bible said a love for money, the love of money, root of all evil. If I teach you that greed is good, I am making merchandise of you. And I'm cursing you for my own profit. I'm, I, see, since I can't curse you, I lead you into error which curses you. They teach it because they feel that since God does not judge immediately, they feel confident that he won't at all. And the people of this doctrine allow it because they've been deceived by it. They allow it so they can participate in it. They allow it because it caters to their flesh and they allow it because they're afraid of standing up to those that practice it. Because if I stop doing what you're doing and what that preacher says is allowable, then I am a testimony against your life and you incur wrath from people. So, Pastor John, what are you saying? What are you saying? I'm saying that we have to know what sin is for ourselves and never let a minister or an, uh, an, uh, a demon uh, disguising himself as an angel of light, convince us to do evil in the sight of the Lord and we won't be judged for it. Now, I don't believe I forfeit my salvation, but the Bible speaks of your life being cut short. Do you remember what it said in Corinthians when you're taking communion? And he said, now some of you take it unworthily, which means you don't esteem, you don't recognize what this symbolizes. His body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. For my sins. And if I take it in rebellion, living like an apostate, Jesus said in his word, he said, now that's why some of you are sick and others of you died prematurely. God just judges them. You have heard me over the years, and I want to ask, how many of you heard me in glowing terms testify of the nature and the ministry of my earthly father? I'm going to tell you the other side. I don't know this firsthand because I was a little boy. But people that knew my father well said that he battled with unforgiveness all of his life. His daddy used to beat him with a, a metal dog chain. And his mother, they were both alcoholics, and his mother was unfaithful. And my daddy was a little boy in the room when he heard the other man's shoes hit the floor. And he could hear his mom with another man in the other bedroom. And her, her, his mom would never stand up to the dad. And my father was physically abused. Not sexually to my knowledge, but physically abused. And he would make statements like, uh, I hate him. I hate him. My mom tells me one day that she said, Roger, you, you, you can't hate anyone. God, God won't forgive you of your sins if you don't forgive them. 
And he made this statement. He said, I could piss on their grave. Now, I'm not demeaning my father to you. I'm submitting this to you, knowing that we could be at the return of the Lord. I wonder if that's why he died when I was a little boy. I don't know. He could have got that cleared up long before he went home. So I'm not saying, but I'm saying that we don't have immunity just because we're pastors or teachers or good men. We're to walk in the fear of the Lord. Be careful of these preachers that all they tell you is how to get to the next level. There is no more level than intimacy. That's it. And those that have a pure heart walk with the Lord. He's close to those with a contrite heart, a meek heart, a broken heart, which is not like we, we hear broken heart on a country record and we think, you know, what, that's not broken heart. It means self-broken to where we want to walk in humility before the Lord. And Balaam's like, no, they're just Moabites and these women will lead you into a new worship experience. There's all kind of stuff coming down the pike now and I worry for this next generation behind me with their access in the internet and what they're hearing. These Eastern mysticism practices being brought into the church and they're saying that's the next level in God. And that's the, you know, it's not just meditating on the scripture now. It's uh, contemplative, uh, sit for two or three hours and just say one syllable over and over and you self-hypnotize and have an experience and they say, that was the Lord. And they don't have enough word in them to know that's not the Lord. So you've got to be careful in this last day not to let someone tell you, well, well that's okay. Uh, you know, we have national and international denominations changing their stances daily on what's right and what's wrong. Do you know why? People are leaving their church because they had a stand on something being wrong. And now to be more relevant, we want to be relevant to the people. No, we want to be faithful to the Christ. It's what we want to be. Let me give you some verses for the correction of this doctrine. And you don't have to look to them. You can write them down. I'll read them to you. Second Peter 2, 1 through 6. But there were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who will bring in damnable hearsays, even, heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the... The way of the truth shall be evil spoken of. Listen, listen to this. Second Peter 2, 3. And through covetousness, the minister with feign words, uh, uh, smoothly crafted words will make merchandise of you. You're the commodity. They'll take your esteem of them, your money of them, and they'll exchange you to be cursed. They make merchandise of you. You're the currency. And through specially crafted words, they'll teach you alternative ways to please the Lord. And, oh, I just want you in liberty. Don't be under the yoke of the law. No, we're not under the law. We're under the greater law to love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, and strength. And we wouldn't want to do those things that grieve him. But these ministers, their damnation slumbers not God will judge them specifically. And if, you, if we're judged so systematically and thoroughly for sins, what do you think awaits the preacher that tells them it's okay to do it? 
For if God spared not the angels which sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness, spared not the old world, but saved Noah and turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them with an overthrow, making them an example unto us that afterward might choose to live ungodly. So here's the, here's the scenario. These false prophets tell them it doesn't matter how you live. It matters how Jesus died. They give you those hashtags. Yes, yes. Well, it doesn't matter how I live to be saved. It mattered how he died. But once saved, it has everything to do with how I live. And the blessing of God is connected to your lifestyle or the chastisement of God. One visual. Picture in your mind's eye a city. I'm not sure how big. I, I didn't look it up. But let's say Sodom and Gomorrah had 5,000 people. The fire and brimstone fell on babies, the elderly, the handicapped, the mentally ill, the blind, the deaf, the rebase, the whole city. That's God in his anger judging the perverseness of the city. And that slick preacher on TV tell you he won't judge you? Be careful of the doctrine of Balaam. Now the beautiful thing is, if you judge yourself, you don't ever live in fear of being judged by anybody, man or God. If I've judged myself and repented, my brother said it, as far as the east is from the west, he's removed my transgressions from me. I am innocent. I am justified. I am clothed in the righteousness of God. And all judgment was placed upon his son. But we can't willfully live the other way. And be careful when a pastor, preacher, tells you something and thousands of people agree with him. And 24,000 people in one day, God killed in the camp of Israel, in the church. You would compare it to the church today, 24,000. If I said, okay, all of you that are being unfaithful to your spouse, God's going to judge you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we come next Sunday, we had 30 funerals. It would be quiet in here. It would be, because you go, oh Lord, I can't come in here. And because God's not judging immediately now, people think that there's no judgment. There's judgment. And the Bible speaks of us being whipped with many stripes. And I don't understand all of that. But the ones that live in error, their salvation was paid for, but the unconfessed sin and the works. Let me give you another verse. Colossians 3, 5 and 6. Mortify, therefore, the members of your body. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness. For these things, the wrath of God falleth upon the children of disobedience. God says, you do it. See, God will not sanctify you. What do you mean? Jesus said, Father, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. What separates you from the world and what separates you unto God is a surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And this word says, for the person that practices uh, sexual immorality, impurity, greed, covetousness, those sins of the flesh, for those reasons, the wrath of God falls upon the children of disobedience. And one of the scariest things I've seen in my lifetime is God judges the parent by judging the child. And then that parent grieves and grieves and grieves like David and Bathsheba's boys said, God said, no, 
There's forgiveness for it, but that baby's going to die. And there's that part, you preach like this and they'll just go, well, I don't believe that. You have to. The wrath of God falls on the children of disobedience. It is coming for those that live with rebellion in their heart. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 11. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, homosexual behavior, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor people that are covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, extortioners. None of them shall have any part in the kingdom of God. And I talk to believers all the time that practice these sins and tell me they're in the faith. And scripture says you will not inherit the kingdom. Not because you do those things. It's evidence that the Holy Spirit is not in you residing because he would not allow you. You you can't practice them. There's a lot of people professing the indwelling of the Lord Jesus Christ and We all fail. Don't get me wrong. I'm the chiefest of sinners. I don't want my forgiven sins brought up to nobody. But there's a difference between sins committed, sins repented of, forsaken, and forgiven than the one that says, I live like I want because I'm a Christian. I'm free. I'm free in the Lord. God said, you will not inherit the kingdom. And they'll get so mad at me. Who are you to say I'm not saved? I did not say it. The scripture says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the doctrine of Balaam says, oh, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Any approach you want to make to God's fine. Whatever you offer him is fine. Sleep with temple prostitutes, eat food, sacrifice idols. It doesn't matter. And they hung the people up dead after God killed them so the camp could see about God's judgment. Listen to this. He said, and such were some of you. Drunkards, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of ourselves, but you have put away, but you are washed, which means put away, washed off. You've remitted of those things. You are sanctified, which means physically pure and morally blameless. And you are justified, rendered innocent and free in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Two verses very quick, two passages very quickly, and we'll bring this to a close. 1 John 3, 1 and 10. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when he appears, we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. And every man that hath the hope in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ purifies himself, even as Christ is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth against the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested, Jesus was manifested, To take away our sins, not the punishment of them, but the sins themselves. And in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him, Jesus, cannot abide in sin. Whosoever hath not seen him, whosoever sinneth, abides in sin, does not even know Jesus. Little children, here it is again. Let no man deceive you with the doctrine of Balaam. Let no man deceive you. He that committeth sin or abideth in sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever is born of God cannot abide in sin. It's the evidence of the believer. How many of you sin? Okay. 
Have any of you tried to backslide? We can do it, but we can't enjoy it. You can do it. I don't believe in the Lord no more. I'm done. Okay, give you time. That same person, I don't believe in none of that mess. They come back to God, whether in a church or in their home. Oh, God, forgive me, forgive me. Because they cannot abide in sin. You do understand that he's ruined you. He's wrecked your capacity to live like you used to live. You can do what you did, but you can't live like you lived. And that's the evidence of the spirit of God in you. Romans eleven twenty says this, because of unbelief, the Israelites were broken off and you stand by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not you. Behold the goodness and the severity of God on them which fell severity, which meant to cut abruptly, decisively, but towards you goodness, if you continue in God's goodness, his moral excellency, his usefulness, otherwise you shall also be cut off. And one quick point on this, he said, and also the, the, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate, and that most commentators believe that the gospel of the Nicolaitans were following a man called Nicholas, which put a separation between the ministers of God and the people of God. There was a, a clergy laity, and they were, you know, which now has birthed into Roman Catholicism and other religions where I'm up here, not just because I'm on a platform, because there's a difference between me and you, and God said, I hate that. Here's what the word says. We are kings and priests unto God. How can I be above and better than you? There's nothing higher than a king. So this is, when you see a pastor or an evangelist or a prophet, you need to understand that all that means is this is my assignment. The dignity does not come where you stand in the church. It's that we stand next to him. That's the dignity. Okay. Ben, if you would come, please. They were under a mandate from God. He said, repent, repent of this doctrine or I will come unto you quickly and I'll fight against you. We talk about fighting against the devil, but what do you do when God fights you? What do you do when God fights your finances? Or when you lose? He said, I'll come and fight against you because I'm not worried about the temporal. I'll let collateral damage go everywhere in this world to save you for the next one. Repentance or personal judgment. He said, I'll fight against you with the sword of my mouth. And they were still temporarily under the mercy of God. The grace of God was available for those who can hear. The grace of God was available for those who submit to what the Spirit of God is saying. The grace of God was available to all who overcome. The grace of God was available as revelation and sustenance. He said, I'll give you hidden manna. The grace of God was available as mercy and pardon, which a white stone in that day and time, if you went to court, a black stone meant you were guilty and a white stone meant innocent. And here's the beautiful, oh, I just love this. He said, and those of you that overcome this, this doctrine, those of you that overcome the doctrine of Balaam, I'll not only pardon you, If you overcome it, that means you don't take part in it. You live rightly according to scripture. He said, I'm going to give you an evidence of your forgiveness. And I'm going to write a name on it that only you know. What does that mean? 
When Jesus walked the earth, he said, if you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. He was revealing who the Father was. And in Revelation, he wasn't revealing the Father. He's revealing himself. So it's not baby Jesus meek and mild. This is the Lord with a sword coming out of his mouth, destroying the armies of the world that come against him in the last day. Here's what he says. So, Pepe, when you let the Spirit of God work on you and change you and change me, he said, I'm not only going to give you an evidence of your pardon, I'm going to rename you. He said, Simon, I'm no longer going to call you Simon. I'm going to call you Peter. I'm changing you from a coward to courageous. And upon the rock of this revelation that you have, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to change your name. And no one knows the change in you like you. And we're not trying to be better than someone else. This isn't a, if you take this message and think I'm trying to put down, no, I'm trying not to put them down, but to call you up to live according to your calling and the expectation. So when the Lord comes, there's nothing there. It is hard to overcome. If overcoming was easy, more people would overcome. But the Lord is right at the door. He's either coming with reward or judgment. Not not judgment being cast away, but do you know why he'll have to wipe away the tears in Revelation? He said, I'll wipe away tears from their eyes because the people that are judged according to their works would cry forever. Regret. my desire for you if the Lord were to come back this month or next month is that you have no part of the doctrine of Balaam. None. Nobody can talk me into sinning. I don't care what their title is. He was a world-renowned psychic in that area of the world. I don't care how many people's in his church. I'm not going to sin openly, willingly, and without fear, I'm going to walk before the Lord humbly. Final thought. Jesus said about the devil coming to get him. He was going to go pay for our sins. He said, he cometh and he's got nothing on me. Isn't that powerful? Here he comes. The devil coming to take you in your home as a man, a husband, coming to take your wife. And and you have the boldness to say, And he ain't got nothing on me. Don't let the sun go down today with anything in your heart between you and Jesus Christ. And if you settle it, you'll find the expectancy will fill your heart. And you say, Lord, I'm ready. Come now. And that's what I want for us. Ben, would you minister this song for me, please? Take away the melody. Take away the song I sing Take away all the lines All the songs you let me write Does the man I am today Say the words you need to say Let them see you Let them hear you.
Those that are standing, remain standing. We've got four minutes before the time we normally close. As long as I preach, I'm going to give opportunity to this. As some of you that have walked away from the Lord publicly, or you still believe, you know, I believe in God, but you're, 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 you've bought into this doctrine of Balaam and your life doesn't match up to your earlier commitments. If you have the courage... I like to do it with eyes open. You say, Lord, I repent of that doctrine. And I want to walk before you in humility of heart. I'm not trying to earn salvation. Only you can give that. But I want you to know I repent today of my sins. If that's you, immediately just stand and come and kneel at this altar. Your pastor's done it hundreds of times. But there's... it. I don't want this doctrine in my life. You're, you're surrounded by people that are standing that have done this. That's why I told them to remain standing. They have lived contrary to scripture and then found grace and repentance. Who else this morning? God bless you. Who else? Come on. Who else? Come on. God bless you. They're coming. Lord, I just repent. That's all I know to do is repent. 
If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you say, I don't understand all of what that means. He died for your sins. And if you know you're a sinner and you need forgiveness, you come and find a place. If that's you, come on. Those standing, will you come kneel with these here? Come on, come on. Husband, wife, those standing, just come and pray with those that are praying today. Say, I've been where you are. Give him every pit of your life, every piece. I've been where you are. Great grace is on you today. I told you in the beginning. Great grace is on you today. Lord, I'm not looking for what I can get away with. I'm looking to bring you honor and glory in my life. before we go home they're praying in the altar this is fine bow your heads with me either I felt either I heard this correctly or I just missed it is there someone in here that's saying to yourself today at the end of this service I've done too much I'm too far gone I've done too much I feel the Lord telling me to tell you you're welcome to come home if you'll just come Wherever you are, don't wait. Just come home. Where are you? Come on. You don't know what I've done, John. The invitation is come home. Where are you? Where are you? Come on. Come on. Waiting for that one. Where are you? God bless you today, young lady. God bless you. Others are still coming. Saints praying all over this building. I just want to tell you this. When he says come home, that means come home. Okay? Just pray here. Holly, could you come over here? Amazing grace, how sweet sound that saved a wretch like me. Y'all stand with us. Let's sing this as our benediction. See you.
feel good to have be washed by the water of the word it can hurt when so you know when someone's burned in a fire initially it doesn't hurt but when you go to scrubbing the skin the old off there's great pain but they say you got to do that for the new to come and there's a washing of the word that's beautiful and there's the washing of infected places now here's the here's the beauty i said all that to say this when the church repents that letter's closed it's closed. Don't talk about that no more. I don't believe the doctrine of Balaam. Then you're good. You've repented of it. Now prepare for the trumpet of the Lord. Now prepare for the trumpet of the Lord. It's coming. We may not make it to the end of the month, and that's all right by me. Have a wonderful Lord's Day. God bless you.